This is Inspiring Minds, a podcast focused on thought-provoking conversations between BSB students and our world-class faculty. Hello, welcome. Uh, my name is Carl Sonnenschein. I am a current VSB senior, and today we are here with Professor John Sendinoff. Welcome. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. So today we're talking about a recent paper that Professor Sendinoff wrote. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your research and what motivated you to write it? So my general research program is uh, focused on banking, banking system risk, financial crises, these types of things. A lot of that's motivated by what happened in 2008 with Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns failing. I was in grad school at the time and it was just too interesting of a thing to go on to to pass up as far as research topics go and it's captivated my attention ever since. So this particular paper that you want to talk about today is um, co-authored with two other professors. One is Andrew Caroli who's at uh, Cornell, Uh, the other is Alvaro Tabuada who's at uh, Mississippi State. Uh, And what we do is look at the impact of cross-border banking flows on systemic risk. So when banks lend to each other, they lend to each other within the United States. They also lend to each other internationally. And so what we're trying to do is understand the impact of, well, when banks do this, when banks send money from country A to country B, what happens to the country that's receiving those funds? Kind of the idea is to think about the changes in funding mix, the changes in the actual composition of the bank itself and how they're going to behave surrounding these funds. And what we find is when, when we have an increase in lending from one country to another in aggregate, um, we observe that systemic risk in the host country, the recipient country, I should say, uh, is actually reduced. We see a reduction in systemic risk, meaning a reduction in kind of the propensity for financial crisis to occur. It's an interesting finding, and it's actually something that's counterintuitive, I think, to what what you might otherwise think is going on there, because why is it that countries might want to lend across borders? And so one of the things we talk about is the idea of regulatory arbitrage that's involved in this. And when you have regulatory arbitrage, you're talking about the idea that, well, in my home country, I can't lend to certain people because of the, the regulations in the country. Or I can lend to them and it's going to be expensive to me because I have to incur capital charges to do it. Uh, in the United States, in any country that's on the Basel system, you've got to change your funding mix to lend to riskier borrowers. You've got to hold more equity relative to debt. Regulators like to see a big equity cushion because this is a barrier between the depositors and and a default situation. So expanding equity relative to the riskiness of the bank's portfolio is important. And so if it's going to cost me a lot of money to do that at home, I might be able to do it somewhere else cheaper. The point is here, it's not always a bad situation when there's regulatory arbitrage. There can be issues and there can be negative consequences, but it's not always bad. We're seeing a huge uptick in cross-border lending. And for a lot of us consumers, we have our savings account, checkings account, maybe even a mortgage at the same banks that are participating in this. Is this something that we should be worried about? Not all cross-border lending is regulatory arbitrage. You know, United States banks lend to banks in the UK and in France just as much as they might lend to banks in, you know, Zimbabwe or somewhere like that. I mean, if it's an over-reliance and it's an over kind of, we, we have this really big effect with a lot of loans going to questionable borrowers, yes, I would be worried about it. However, from an alternative perspective, what the bank is doing when it lends internationally is also diversifying its loan portfolio. So when you think about what a bank does just from the ground up, if I have a bank that pulls a bunch of deposits in and makes one big loan to one company, 
the bank's going to fail just as often as that company will. But now if the bank splits those deposits up among two loans to two firms, now I have a little bit less probability of bank failure because if one of the loans fails, the other one still might pay off and I can still be okay. And as we increase the loan portfolio size across different borrowers, different geography, um, different types of companies, different types of individuals who are borrowing, I've created diversification. Now, if I'm loading up all in one place and I have a lot of exposure in a country that's risky, or I have a lot of exposure in a country where there's a crisis that happens, there's potential for spillover. But the more diversified the portfolio is and the less clustered it is towards one place, the better. So in aggregate, probably not a big, huge thing to worry about, um, but we've seen spillovers happen. It happened in 2008. It happened in Europe, in the European crisis in 09 to 11. So these things can happen. To switch gears a little bit, we discussed earlier before recording about the emergence of digital currencies, uh, specifically something like Bitcoin. Right. Are banks engaging in the use of Bitcoin for making loans or are they taking deposits? I mean, how is this interfering or engaging with banks internationally? Banks have a hard time with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin still has a bit of a stigma attached to it as far as are people using it for illegal purposes. From that perspective, the U.S. dollar is used just as much for illegal purposes right, right. as Bitcoin might be these days. Maybe yeah. it, when it first started, you had people who use Bitcoin. And it's appealing to people who want to use it for whatever. Pick your favorite illegal activity because of its anonymous nature, right? So I, I have a combination of letters and numbers that's attached to my wallet and not my name. So I can kind of go buy and sell things that maybe I couldn't do with my credit card. So, so banks are a little bit wary of that stigma. So I think they're kind of staying away from deposit accounts and things like along that line. But what it could do if Bitcoin gains a wider acceptance, it could draw down the potential depositor pool as people flock from using the U.S. dollar as a store of value to Bitcoin, in which case then banks may have a little bit more of a problem trying to find funding, uh, especially cheap funding like deposits, which could be a potential issue. But systemically and uh, internationally, from the banking system perspective, uh, I don't see Bitcoin as being a big problem. The problem would come from if there was some sort of a crisis with its value, where it did reach a, a large level of acceptance, where people were really using it. If there's a problem with value for Bitcoin, there's nobody to defend that value. There's no central government, which again, if I'm a Bitcoin supporter, this is one of the things I love about the currency. But as an economist, uh, this is one of the things that's scary about the currency. Kind of playing off of that, we've seen um, technology play a huge role moving forward in the financial sector. I mean, um, as a student, Venmo or PayPal is something I use pretty frequently even to pay rent these days. On a larger scale, a company like SoFi would be um, a lender for student loans. How do you see technology playing into this research that you've done? I mean, what's what it's going to be like going forward? For one, banks develop their own technology. You know, you can go back to even ATMs, internet banking, these types of things. Um, as banks become better at processing data and banks become better at modeling credit risk and other things, that makes it less likely for a borrower who is reliant on soft information to get funding. It's more difficult possibly for me uh, as a small business owner or somebody with an idea who, who doesn't has, don't, I don't have financial records yet. I have a business idea I want to get initial funding for it. That's harder to do now. 
so from the bank internally developing, it's, there's an issue for credit markets, for the banks competing with technology. So you mentioned PayPal and these other things. They're external to the banking system. Um, they're competing with banks. And this is going to have the effect of eventually when you have competition like this, is going to reduce your profit margins, right? You're going to have to start competing with on price. And as banks do that, uh, this shifts the environment for banks to start thinking about, well, how can I make my shareholders happy and generate return for them? Uh, if I can't do it with traditional loans because I'm being undercut by other people and other, other companies, then where do I turn? And, you know, you can think back again to the crisis for evidence as to what's going to go on. When we saw deregulation and we allowed commercial banks and investment banks to merge when, when Glass-Steagall was repealed, you could make the argument that the banks that merged together, the commercial banks and the investment banks that merged, like J.P. Morgan, ended up with a wider variety of services to offer, achieved some economies of scope, perhaps, and generated better returns for their shareholders. Meanwhile, you have investment banks like Bear, Lehman, Merrill Lynch that were kind of standalone um, that had to figure out a way to do this with their current mix of products without adding to the overall mix. So these guys became essentially just gigantic hedge funds. They levered up, they engaged in proprietary trading. That proprietary trading in some cases led to a reliance on mortgage-backed securities. And we all know kind of what happened from there. So I would say if we want to link this, the idea of technology to system risk or financial system risk, technology is going to drive competition. Competition is going to drive down profits. And that's going to lead banks to look for other areas. And if banks need other areas to make profits, it could be that they engage in extra risk-taking. And risk-taking is bad if it's excessive and it's not hedged properly. Thank you so much for coming on this episode of Inspiring Minds and make sure to tune in next week. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to Inspiring Minds. Stay tuned for our next installment featuring more VSB students discussing research topics with our world-class faculty. 